But I think there's a real, um, there, I, I see a real change uh, in that we're working together a lot, a lot more effectively. Uh, so, you know, I've only been with CSIRO for three and a half years, uh, and you know, three three years ago. Um, I'd talk to a company or, or, or my staff and, and they talk about projects that they were doing and they were real fee-for-service projects, uh, some of them, some of them not, not all of them. And I'd go, well, why are we doing this work? Or, you know, or I'd say to the company, we're not interested in doing this work. We're interested in doing research, research and in, in innovative work. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Sandy Occupinti, Research Director of the Discovery Program Mineral Resources at CSIRO. Now, Sandy and I have never really met in person, but our path recently crossed through both of our connections with the Australian Geoscience Council. So, because I don't really know Sandy that well, our discussion starts with a bit of a background, as I really enjoy listening to how people got into their profession and what drives them and how they got to where they got today. And if that part of the conversation is not fast-paced enough for you, then feel free to skip ahead. But I've noticed as I'm getting into more of these talks that most of our listeners actually really enjoy these stories and particularly our younger viewers might get some inspiration from them. What I really wanted to kick around with Sandy in this talk is to understand what CSIRO does. Sandy runs through some of the amazing discoveries and inventions they've come up with over the years. We talk about products like portable PPB, data mosaic and photon assaying. We really focus on the importance of acknowledging failure as part of the discovery process and we explore how her planning process works and how to measure success. I asked Sandy how CSIRO keeps track of what others are doing elsewhere in the world and how the centre of gravity in R&D and mining is perhaps shifting away from Australia and, if, and what we need to do to address this. Of course, I asked what is the next discovery on the horizon and what new things are going to make explorers' lives easier in the future. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. I learned a lot from Sandy, and if there's anything I've left on the table here, then please let me know in the comments so we may be able to circle back to this in a future discussion. Let's get into it. Hey, Sandy, how are you going? I'm good, thanks. Hey, uh, good to see you, but uh, as I was preparing for the talk, I realized we've only just recently really connected uh, through, the, through the AGC. Um, I don't think our networks have really, you know, obviously both geologists, but I don't think we've ever sort of come across each other in the industry and I'm always interested in people's background. Uh, I read a little bit um, about, you know, your, your career and I think both of our families come from Europe. So I was wondering what, what drew you into geology. And I think I read and clarify if, if I got it wrong, but you know, you didn't really quite know what you wanted to do, but you got into geology and, you know, as, as you hear quite often, one thing led to another and ended up um, quite firmly um, in, in, into rock world. So I'm always interested to hear about um, how people decided to get into geology and then all the way to where you're sitting now. What, do you mind taking us on a bit of a journey there? Yeah, so um, so yeah, I'm from a farming background and, and my parents, uh, well, my family's originally from Sicily, um, so really purely Sicilian. Um, they're from different regions. My well, my mum was actually born in Australia, but only just. But the families were from different regions, uh, and uh, as a result of that, they spoke different languages. Really, oh, so I never learned how to speak um, their dialects, and they didn't speak anything that resembled Italian. Um, they tell me I, I have no idea really. So I'm very much Australian um, yeah. with all of that. But I think being from um, 
So I'll get to how I got into geology in a second, but I think being from a farming background uh, put me in good stead to be a geologist. I was a field geologist for, for many, many years and I'm not afraid of being outside and, uh, you know, just I quite like it really. So that that's how I sort of, um, once I was exposed to it, that's how I got into it. But the, the way I got into it was a bit unusual. I um, was quite okay at, at high school um, and um, I, at the end of year 12, I decided to do arts because I'd done science all through school and um, I really loved English literature and drama and so I wanted to become, I wanted to do drama and literature at university Uh, but my teachers got really upset when I put my preferences down. So in those days you actually, uh, you had to sort of mail a preference list but through the school to the unit to, I don't know, whatever the group was that you mailed it to Mm. Um, and they, when your results came in, you would be told whether or not you got into your first or second preference or whatever. And there was no formally going back from that. You, you, you got in somewhere or you didn't, basically. Anyway, because I was so upset, I put I put our Monash Science first as my first preference, and the rest were arts, Caulfield Arts, blah mm-hmm. arts, such and such arts, <laughs> all over Victoria, I think. Yeah. Um, I got into science, and I. I remember ringing my best friend um, at the time and uh, saying to her, I got into science, and she said, that's so bad. So I was really yeah. upset. Um, but, yeah. you know, I'm someone that finishes what I start. So I went and enrolled, and when mm-hmm. I went to enrol, um, <laughs> the person at the desk uh there was Bob Gregory, um, so he's Professor Bob Gregory now, I imagine, or he is. Um, and he, he taught geology, um, first year geology. And he said, you know, what do you want to do? And I go, oh, I don't know, a bit of chemistry maybe. I said, I really don't want to do physics anymore, mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe some maths. I've never done biology. Maybe I'll do some biology. Yeah. And he said, well, what about geology? And I didn't even know what it was. And I just said, yeah, why not? And that's how, that's how I got started um, in it. And I found that I was quite good at it. Um, probably because of the storytelling aspect of geoscience, really, uh, just getting those little bits of clues together and and then having to put together a tangible um, story around it. It's not like some of the other sciences, well, the other sciences where they're more like you have a hypothesis and you're testing the hypothesis. We, we go about and we, we collect clues and, and build a story. Yeah. And I really loved it, basically. Um, yeah, so I yeah. finished that's that, that was funny that you mentioned it because we were talking um yeah i've been talking it to other people about how they got into it and you know i think at one point we were discussing it as you know we get paid to solve puzzles basically right i mean it's 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 yeah. um it, it's not uh yeah every day is different and it's that that quest uh, and storytelling we've t- talked about because i'm not sure you follow, uh, you know, Hayden Moore's geologize, but you know, it's all about this outreach and, and this advocacy, right? And it's about storytelling. And geologists are excellent storytellers. <laughs> so, um, with I'm waving um, included, so I can see how that was an appeal. But, uh, uh, but then, so you know, you, you, you how, how then? Well, if you're in Australia, you're a geologist. Chances are, I guess, you end up in the mining industry. But was that a deliberate choice as well, or? Uh, not to begin with. So um, I wanted to become a mapping geologist because I liked to um, 
be the one to tell the story the first time, uh, I guess, maybe. Um, you have to be a bit of a jack of all trades when you when you do that as well. So I wanted to be a regional mapping geologist. So I joined the Geological Survey of Western Australia. I was really lucky to get a job in a survey back then. That was 1994 mm. um, after I'd finished my master's. Uh, and, you know, I worked there for quite a while, for about seven years, and then I got a bit... Um, you know, it became all a bit the same, uh, the work that I was doing. I felt that I needed to learn a bit more uh, mm. and I didn't think I would gain it from staying in, in that job. So I went back to university. And then after, so after doing the whole uh, PhD thing, I had a real rethink about where I needed to go um, in yeah. space to, to make a difference and what my end goal might be. Um, so I decided that I should get into economic geology at that point. And that took me on a journey um, uh, which led me into the minerals industry through Fugo Airborne Surveys, first of all, and then into Anglo Gold Shanty. So, um, yeah, and I became, you know, I'm still a structural geologist, I, I guess, uh, really, but um, a bit more focused on that economic side was, was, you know, that's what I had decided to do because I wanted to make a difference, really. Yeah, that's interesting because the, um, and, I, we didn't set this up, but as a structural geologist myself, all I ever wanted to do is get paid to map. I was talking to Mike Stewart about this the other day, exactly that, and he he told me about his uh, his entry into uh, the industry as a resource geologist, and indeed he mapped uh, for for years. And uh, as we were joking, you know, uh, we, if if somebody paid me lunch, I'll go out and map somewhere because that's really why, why we why we get into it. And it's interesting because you know it's not that easy anymore to get paid to map if that's what you call it you have to be really really good um at what you do and be prepared to you know to be out there for a number of weeks you know out in the sticks and in, in in the wild um and that's not for everybody if you want to mix that with uh, with family life and and so on so again as i was discussing with some others you end up wanting to do 3d modeling resource geology because you can still play with structure a little bit um, and you can still go to sites and be in the field, but you can pick and choose a little bit. But uh, yeah, interesting because I had the same um, recognition, I guess, when I came to New Zealand. I wanted to map. I do it for free, basically, but uh, I got in touch with economic geology. So it sounds like a, a bit of a similar uh, similar story. Um, and yeah, never look back because it's, uh, you know, there's not a day that goes by that uh, that's the same and where there's not a new challenge somewhere, uh, particularly from a service perspective. But so obviously, you know, you worked for some, some larger companies uh, then. What drew you to the research side? Um, how did you, I mean, obviously, you, as a, having done a PhD, you probably have that then in your blood and, and that continuous quest must be something you know that 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 drives that uh, there, but I mean now you're working with Cyro. Um, was that always an aspiration, or is that sort of did that was that another sort of left field and like oh actually now this brings me all the way back full circle and this is what I really wanted to do for such a long time. What, what? Um, yeah, so um, after my foray into industry, I joined the Centre for Exploration Targeting at UWA, um, and I did that um, because. Uh, at the time, um, in the gold, you know, it's Anglo Gold Shanty, so very focused on gold, um, which is which is great. But I thought I'd like to learn about other commodities, uh, and there was a mineral systems uh, job going um, at 
at CT and I thought, well, you know, I'd give that a go. And so that, that that's what drew me back into research. It, it wasn't by design, I don't think, at that point, but I did make a conscious, I did sort of, in my thought process of going through that, um, I deliberately sort of worked through the whole thing and thought, well, you know, if, I, if I've come from a survey background and I've done a bit of, you know, I've done my PhD, so I've got that sort of tick, mm. um, done the the industry stuff. After this job, I can either go back into industry, again, as a technical specialist perhaps, or I could continue a journey um, in academia if it's um, feasible to do so. Mm. But, you know, I'm not, I wasn't, I didn't go in with my eyes closed. It's very difficult to get a, to, to get a position in a university. Um so yeah, it wasn't really by design, um, and I, I I don't know if what you what I do now you call research because I'm a research director yeah, now, sure. um, and I do very little research myself really. Uh, it's more around directing um, the research and setting the strategic direction for that research to go off into the future. Um, but I just want to circle back to something you said earlier about being a structural geologist and wanting to map uh, I think times have changed a bit as well though now because we're doing so much exploration through cover um, there's really no point um, spending long periods of time in the field uh, you know you obviously want to go ground truth your interpretations and, the, and that kind of thing but you know that's what I found even while I was working with Anglo um, and uh, Fugro is that it's really was about using the data that was available coming up with at that point, actually, it is like coming up with a hypothesis in a way and then going out and starting to test it uh, by uh, identifying areas where there are rock um, or samples that you can then access. So um, I think you can still be a structural geologist and, and, and perhaps not <laughs> not have to be out there for as long as we originally were. But um, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, structural geology is, is, is broad, obviously, and most of my friends, if not all of them, um, you know, back in Holland, ended up in the oil and gas industry. And mm -hmm. I always joke, I, I couldn't be asked to sit there and stare at some white and black squiggly lines and, and with my blue crayons come up with folds. And I mean, that, that wasn't really that exciting. And I'm probably underselling it a little bit, but, uh, um, you know, the mapping, yeah, it depends on where you are, obviously, as well, and at what level you're working. I mean, structural geology has, has, has I mean, I've got actually the micro tectonics uh, by Peshir on the table here as a bit of a prop, but, you know, that's sort of the micro, and uh, it goes all the way up to large scale, and, uh, you know, different people have different focus. So I talked to Brett Davis the other day, you know, who's, who's out in the field doing a lot of this kind of work, really interesting, yeah. and then you've got the June Cohens who really look at it from a digital perspective, and, you know, we all, all bring our little bit to it, but th the connection to me, back to your farm equivalent, you know, was I, I wanted to be out in the field as well. That was that was it. If you can be out in the field, breathing fresh air and climbing mountains and getting paid for it, then I always get really jealous if I see Canadian geologists about what they're doing there, posting pictures on, on social media about, you know, helicopter supported mapping. That's fantastic. And um, But, yeah, it's, it's, it is different and it is harder to find ground that hasn't already been mapped, you know, 10 times over. And 80 years ago, they made some pretty damn fine maps, right? They, they knew their rocks and they knew, they knew how to map. Uh, so a lot of the people that I know now that do this work are doing it in Africa or areas that, that are perhaps, you know, or just opening up. Um, yeah. But yeah, it is, it is, uh, yeah, it is different. And yeah, do I do, I'd love to do more structural geology, but, and, and indeed, 
I mean, like you said, as a director of research, you don't do research and, you know, I, I run a consultancy and I always try to find a balance because I love doing the technical work. Yes, so um, do I. So it's, yeah. it's really hard, isn't it, to find, it is. to find those opportunities. And um, yeah. I find that I'm starting to find those opportunities in, in new opportunities. So like, yeah. you know, at the moment we're looking at um, mineral carbonation. So, yeah. uh, you know, so very different to what I have done before, but uh, really important as well. Uh, and rather than going and asking everybody else to do to do something, I, I sort of put my hands in as well, just to sort of get something started, which yeah. is which is really fun actually. To, but to there, I mean, I, I don't really know about the architecture of Syro to be honest. I mean, I, uh, I I've talked to a lot of people who've worked there, um, but I've and I've been there once. <laughs> well, which uh, one? Because we've got fifty-two offices. Or something. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the one in in, in, in Perth, um, right. and uh, yeah, uh, Oscar Aronon was still working there, I think, before he yeah. uh, went back to Snowden and um, caught caught up with him there, and that was my first time there, and I, it was all new to me because you know I. I I come a little bit left field to the industry. I mean, I, I, I knew what pyrite was when I finished my degree. Well, yeah, I'm joking. But it wasn't really, well, no mineral focus whatsoever, right? It's, it's, uh, that's not the, the, the Dutch school. So it was interesting to be in that building and actually hear about, you know, what, what CSIRO does and all the various um, research work going on. Uh, recently, we were talking about Detect Ore um, because we work very closely together with Olympus. Uh, we rent out their machines, instruments, pardon me. We rent out their instruments and, uh, you know, th they've done a deal with Detect Ore. And I remember going to a talk uh, by Syro people three, four, five years ago when that was just being developed. And I was like, wow, you know, where is this coming from? And that must be quite rewarding, right? Because you're actually really fundamentally adding value to the to the industry in a discovery process. So. Yeah, so that's, and that's what is attractive about CSIRO for me. So having worked in sort of government, industry and academia, I can sort of see CSIRO being um, a vehicle to uh, take those learnings um, and, mm. and things that are happening even in that space now. And actually, and, and but but funnel it into a way that can be used by the community. And our community um, is you know big users of um, our technologies and our knowledge mm. is the minerals industry. It really um, so that and that's what CSIRO does. It's 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 this sort of bubble between industry and academia. The idea, everything we do here, we do think about whether or not it will. Um, add to some knowledge, a methodology, a technology that can eventually be commercialised or taken out um, uh, into the, into the industry um, and and used routinely. So that's that's where we get our big impact from. Yeah, and and um, where do you decide whether you or where and how do you decide that you're barking up the wrong tree? Because there must be projects that you you're sort of into. It's multi-year and. There are so many unknown unknowns because it's research. You work with a budget. You work with outcomes. Uh, you know, you talked about strategic vision. I mean, you work, there's a bunch of projects in a pipeline, I'm guessing, and people are working on it. And it'd be hard to say, yeah, we'll, we'll figure this one out by such and such date. I mean, um, I'm, I'm just thinking aloud here, but how, how difficult is that? Hey, hey, is anybody at some point after 10 years of working on something, folks, I, I think we need to let this one go. Is that Does that live at all or is that, am I just... Uh... Yeah, so that's really um, interesting you should ask because it's something that we've been, we've been discussing um, internally about fast fails 
and mm. just not being afraid of failure. So there is a real culture, I think, uh, just generally in 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 science, not just geoscience, where people don't talk about their failures. Yeah. Um, and the result of that is that we do them again. Okay, mm-hmm. like so we there there have been instances where I've sort of said, Well, didn't someone try that fifteen years ago? What's what's the difference now? Have we got new technologies? Are we using different um, instrumentation or different vessels to yeah. you know, to deal with the gas or whatever? Um, and they'll go, No, we, we don't, or yes we do, you know. So no, we don't, why are we doing it? Let's just write a paper, say that it failed, you know. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's get that it let's get that knowledge out there. Um but so the way we do it now um, is that so we, we're taking quite high risks now um, within the discovery program. And, and Oscar, you know, you were, were talking about uh, just before, hmm. he, he was part of my program basically. Um, uh, I think in the past we would do, there'd be a lot of strategic work within CSIRO, so uh, government funded um, for a long period of time and then maybe try to spin it out into industry. And that's kind of where Detectal um, fit. You know, once it got to a particular um, technology ready, readiness level, um, we look, we put out an EOI. It was before I joined the group. They put out an EOI and um, portable PPV was successful and they, they took that out. Uh, what we're doing now is a bit less of that and we will, we will take industry on us um, uh, on a journey of discovery basically so we think we'll get something together and think think there's something in this um get a bunch of sponsors in uh or work with some, a few different groups and try it and we tell them and so this is research and development so mm-hmm. one of the examples around that is ultrafines or ultrafines mm-hmm. plus mm-hmm. um so that's that clay sort of um geochem yeah. that ryan noble is leading and We've partnered with LabWest, so we've basically licensed the methodology to LabWest. Uh, so we've gone with a with a with a company. It was reasonably high risk, really, to begin with. We've brought in I don't I don't know twenty or thirty sponsors into that project initially, and uh, basically doing the GCM uh, across Australia and yeah. New Zealand. I think actually there's parts of New Zealand where we got yeah. samples as well. Um, an offshoot of that particular program, which we di- which, it, which we didn't predict, was that we've developed a machine learning mechanism to map um, landscapes, uh, so to domain the landscape, so that we can um, interpret the geochemistry from those landscape domains uh, more accurately, uh, and that is really high value. But we we didn't see that coming, and if those yeah. companies hadn't come on board with us, they wouldn't know it existed. Yeah. So there's, it's a win-win, really. So that we're trying to do that more and more now within the program. Of course, we're yeah. limited to the number of things like that we can do, but we've got, you know, I don't know, eighty-five to ninety staff at any one time. So we, we are running quite a number of these sorts of um, projects. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, that's that's interesting because the the, um, I guess the way every project works, whether it's for. Um, whether it's a, an exploration company or a service company, there must be some sort of measurable outcome to this. And if you're mm. talking about measuring success here, uh, there's got to be some sort of feedback loop. Like if if some of these new ideas have commercial offtake, that that's a real clear indicator of a successful program. And to see those deals coming out, but is that so? Is that at any point brought into that process? As in, 
um, you know, there is funding from the government and does there need to be a demonstrable return or is it just R&D and whatever happens, happens? No, we need to have a demonstrable return really. Um, but it, 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 it doesn't need to be a return on money or return on investment exactly. The demonstrable return might be that a, a new company started, started and, and they employed 20 people or something like yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, there needs to be some sort of impact. And, and, you know, I think great impact is what Portable PPB are doing. You know, they've got a, you know, a factory, basically, that they've built um, yeah. with an R&D facility. Yeah, a great success story, yeah. Great Absolutely. success story. They've, yeah. they've employed a number of staff. They've got, you know, they've built all their widgets. Uh, they've got their testing kits, you know, field yeah. kits to be sent out, mini kits and the max. Oh, we, can't, we can't wait to, to run with it. Uh, I was talking to Todd Houlihan uh, the other day and, you know, we were yeah, just both like, kids really being really excited about a new technology putting out there and... and, and I've seen some people already using it and, and talking very positively around it. But that might actually be an interesting point to touch on because there is a sense of conservatism in our industry that is fairly frustrating to um, observe sometimes, right? I mean, you, whether it's something simple that's a little bit more in my wheelhouse, like implicit modeling, why wouldn't you use that as long as you do it smartly? It's been 19 years since it's been discovered, but we're still being so clunky with a number of interpretations that I just wonder why aren't we all using that? And I'm, I'm guessing from where you're sitting sometimes, you come up with all these wonderful things and not enough people are using it. Is there any any outlet push? Are you? Is there... Is there, a, is there a balcony from which to shout all the advancement or either people will pick it up or they don't? What, what's, I mean, are you, uh, are you pleased with, um, with port, uh, portable PPB's up, um, uptake, I guess, of a new product? But take Data Mosaic, for instance, right? If I look at that, I go, that's fantastic. I mean, surely everybody's, it's just an algorithm, right? So, I mean, groups like IOGuess and all those and Leapfrogs and all those folks—they should be building that in tomorrow because it, it can't be more than I get a few pages of code, surely. And we need to all be doing that. Right? I'm probably completely yeah. on this. <laughs> you so know, I think but, it's about ten thousand lines of code, um, but mm. um, it's um, yeah, it is. A, it, it's sometimes difficult in our industry not to get frustrated, um, but it takes. It, it takes 10 years to change something um, yeah. in, in any industry and we have to be a little bit patient. I think the best way of getting stuff out there is actually through um, working with SMEs. So at the moment actually around Data Mosaic, we're working with, a, with an SME around um, licensing Data mm -hmm. Mosaic into their business model and hopefully that they will take it out. Uh, and their clients will, will use it. We've actually just put it, it, it has been a web app for a while and we've just started a, um, we've started selling it for the first time actually. I saw that, is, yeah. You see that? $5, I think. Yeah, five, so I saw that. I was like, is there a comma missing or? <laughs> no, no, we just say so we're, we're just, it's to test the platform, the payment yeah. platform really. Yeah. But even um, after that, we're trying to keep it quite cheap really. Sure. Um, because we want people to use it. Uh, and we're also going to build into it. So Data Mosaic that you see today, it'll always be there, but there'll be other parts coming into Data Mosaic. So it's going to be our downhole logging tool, basically, is mm. what we're looking at it as. So there's a, a new bit of ML that will be added to it, hopefully, um, in the next oh. 12 months or so. 
uh, and then again another one. You know, so we've got actually plans for the next couple couple years out for that for that um, software. But of course, we use it internally, so yeah. we don't want to stop supporting it because yeah. we actually use it. Um, when we work with a company, we'll use Data Mosaic. Uh, we see other um, possibilities in, in using that code as well internally. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if we, if we wind the clock back a number of years, there's the spectral geologist, which we, we have. And that's, that's bizarre. Like, well, so it's bizarre. It's great. It's not bizarre. I'm just, it's um, great software yeah. to, um, to sort of eke out that mineralogy from your spectra. Yeah. Uh, in theory, it can be used on any spectra, any types of spectra at all. And we, we're continually building up those libraries. Uh, and we, it's quite popular. We sell a lot of, we sell many licenses of that software globally. The way we do it is we sell it via on-sellers. We have people that we're connected to. We license them to be able to sell that software to their clients, essentially. And then we just receive a royalty back into CSIRO. That's the model. Um, We don't really have the capacity in my team to to do that work. And I don't want my research scientists doing that. I want them building libraries and and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, well, that that obviously a model is that that works, right? And uh, you know, I mean, there's there's a few years of experience in that team as well, right? With with demonstrable success. And I mean, I don't think many other countries can claim a a, a research house that that adds that much value to this particular industry. So it's uh, and that and that's maybe, um, you know, another line of of. uh, of question. I mean, it must be hard, or, or maybe it's easy to to find the right people to come on board, right? Because as I'm sure your business is safe as mine, it's about the people that that work in it. Um, and we talked about education, and, and obviously that's a bit of a crossover with the AGC, and we can talk about how it's dwindling and all the rest of it. But I've got too many conversations on that topic already. But um, that must be is is it becoming harder to find good people to come in um, because you know no. perhaps the same as the, the gap between the rich and the poor is it the one percent and they're becoming smaller and smaller or is it are more people knocking on the door you don't have to actually go and find them look it's difficult to find geophysicists i would say um yeah. in terms of finding people to come in uh so geophysicists are, are hard uh, having said that we have recently employed um I think two new geophysicists into the team, which is great, and we're, we're actually going to look for another one very shortly. Um, we don't tend to ha- find it that difficult to attract people to apply for jobs in CSIRO. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, uh, but when we advertise a position, we get we, we get a lot of applicants. Yeah. Uh, so they're very heavy cuts. And you might see coming up soon, we're going to, CSIRO started to advertise in different ways as well uh, for pe- to attract people into, into the, the agency. Uh, one way is a direct adver- advertising where we sort of say that we've got this job and we're advertising it, you know, like that's just, you know, what we have always done. And then the other one is doing these campaigns and the latest campaign I think is called Impossible Without You or something oh, like yeah. that. That's, that's a nice um, ring to it. Or possible with you, or something. Yeah. I think <laughs> one of those. Uh, look it up. Put a yeah, link yeah, in the description. Yeah, But it's um. So we will be advertising for people that can work in critical minerals soon. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. That, and some ask. of those people will connect back to us within discovery or into processing or other parts of the minerals value, um, um, the, the mining value chain, basically. Um, 
So through those programs, there's hundreds of people that apply for positions, yeah. um, but there are lots of jobs that come with those campaigns as well. So it's definitely worth um, applying. Luxury problem. It's so a great of... problem to have, I yeah. think, um, having too many, too many applicants sometimes. And does that, that all that hiring happen at your desk or is that sort of a group effort? Oh, no, I can't do it all. Yeah. <laughs> so definitely doesn't all happen at my desk. So usually we just have a From you know, a technical perspective, I mean, you, you've got yeah. HR, obviously, I mean, are you, but, but from a technical perspective, are you involved with our, those? Yeah. Our technical, our, our engineers and scientists are involved in the hiring. Yeah. So yeah. they're the ones that are, they're the decision makers in the, in the hiring. And every now and then I'll sit on, a, sit on a hiring committee, but I only try to, I try to limit that to a couple of years. Basically, yeah. for me, um, I might set the role description um, yeah. with, with the staff, but um, yeah, I try. You know, we try. I try to make sure that people have um, the autonomy to to make the decision on who they're going to work with. So, what we find is we get really um, capable people applying for these positions. Uh, we're looking for people that can. Um, to quote, actually, someone else that said this recently. I think I can't remember who it was exactly. They said. We want people that almost have that childlike, um, that have maintained that 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 childlike, Curiosity. playful sense where they want to learn more, right? Yeah. Because our our industry is changing; it's changing so quickly, um, and we need to be ready for that change. You know, we don't want to attract people in that say, well, you know, I've always worked on lead zinc and, and that's what I do. You know, it's great. Right. <laughs> lead zinc. Just imagine what you could do with copper, right? Yeah, so yeah. Um, it could also be that you've worked on lead zinc, um, you know, you know, know something about basins. Uh, let's have a look at sequestering carbon into those basins, you know. Yeah, so yeah. they're the types of people that we're trying to attract in, people with that curiosity um, that want to innovate are happy to work in a team as a team environment. So just sort of all boots in. Yeah. Wow. So are you looking for, I mean, the team is expanding, as you say. So should we say, you know, if people are listening, yeah, geophysicists out there, but you have to work with Mr. Austin, which you, which might be, a, is, is James still there or is he still? James, the yeah, Jim's here. So he's um, yeah. in our Linfield office. He's just employed two new staff. So ah, I should um, catch up with him. Terrible, terrible sense of music. You should tell him that. So he's a taste. No, I don't, no, I don't want to upset him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm joking. It's it's quite yeah. uh, quite aligned to mine actually. But I always like catching up with him. I mean, uh, geophysics is not really my wheelhouse, and um, yeah, it is hard to find good ones. Um, uh, and and a lot of them are working in consultancies, and uh, it's, they're it's very difficult. busy people. Yeah, actually. very busy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's it's also you know it's obviously not a one size fits all kind of model. So mm, it depends yeah. on what you're looking for at the time. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of work in petrophysics, which is what Jim's been doing um, yeah. as well with their petrophysical lab, uh, and also that um, building that relationship between petrophysics and geophysics. And of course, in the exploration through cover space, mm. we're looking much deeper now. So mm. we're actually looking for people that can delve a lot deeper. Um, so, so maybe maybe expand on that. I mean, what what do you see the next twenty years going to then? I mean, look in the crystal ball. I mean, you obviously got. I mean, I don't need you to go into all the the, the secret squirrel stuff that's happening behind the scenes. But what, where, I mean, everybody's talking about our undercover. You know, everybody's harder to find. Blah blah blah. We know this. But what what's what what game changing discoveries? And what's the area that we need to look at? I mean, we talk ourselves silly here as well. Everybody talks about machine learning, and I'm getting a little bit sick and tired of it sometimes, but it's clearly, it's working in some places, but it's not the be-all, end-all solution to everything. 
a gradual change in all sorts of areas is, is what the logical outcome of that is, but, and there are a lot of changes, but we are being accused quite regularly as an industry, and I'm using this word perhaps a little bit too specifically, of not being innovative enough. But when I say that, I get, I'm probably gonna rally up a fair bit because we, you know, that's what you, you do over there. Are, are we being support enough? Jackie came out with a number that we are only at 9% of the research and development budget that we had 20 years ago. Is that enough to really truly be innovative? Are we, are we making all the wins that we should be making? No, we're not making all the wins we should be making. And um, I agree with Jackie, we're probably not spending enough money. But, um, but I think there's a real, um, there, I, I see a real change uh, in that we're working together a lot, a lot more effectively. Right. Uh, so, you know, I've only been with CSIRO for three and a half years mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, three three years ago um, I'd talk to a company or, or, or my staff and, and they talk about projects that they were doing and they were real fee-for-service projects, uh, some of them, some of them not, not all of them. And I'd go, well, why are we doing this work? Or, you know, or I'd say to the company, we're not interested in doing this work. We're interested in doing research, research and in, in, innovative work, you know, so... Mm. We, we, we may not deliver you what you're expecting because, um, you know, we can't predict always what the outcome's going to be. We want to go on this journey with you. And we've got to the point now when we have those conversations with industry, they understand we're a research organisation uh, and they're coming to us because we're a research organisation because they know that when they come to CSIRO, um, if they believe they're going to have a, go to mine somewhere, say in five mm. or ten years, uh, we can have solved a bunch of the problems before they get there, right? So they'll know what their um, processing um, plant's going to look like. They may have other revenue streams coming in with their waste or, or whatever, okay, because that's not something my program can do, but it's something that other groups within CSIRO can get involved with. So we're seeing a lot more of that now. So I think that um, things will pick up in yeah. terms of R&D. Uh, we do... We are seeing a lot more government funding going into R&D now than we, um, around critical minerals, uh, uh, green steel, um, uh, carbon abatement, uh, that sort of thing. And we've just had a change of government here in Australia and, and that, that may be driving some of those changes, mm-hmm. although some of them, you know, were already in play prior to the, the change. And that, that usually seeds other investment. So it usually seeds investment from companies into, into the market, um, that research and development market as well. So I'm quite hopeful um, in terms of that. Although we spent a lot more money years ago on, on, in, on, on, on R&D, uh, were, we, were we focused enough with that R&D? Or were we just spending money on it? So we, we've got to the point now where we're quite focused on the R&D, on our expenditures, on, on what we're spending the money on. So maybe we're a little bit more efficient around it as well, and that puts us in really good stead um, going forward um, in, into the future. Yeah, yeah because uh, the, the R&D budgets, and I think, I mean, I, this is not really something I know a lot about, but the... Um, there must be at country scale real competitiveness going on as well, and and Australia haven't made all its fortunes in the iron ore industry. There must there must be a reinvestment in the industry that's logical to make. And um, I'm not I'm not sure if it was Jackie or somebody else, but said that you know that the the R and D center of gravity is shifting more and more to more to China, um, and um, the reason I'm mentioning that because at at CSIRO, 
there must be, and you talked about, I'm trying to weave a few things together, but you talked about collaboration. And if it's true research, then borders shouldn't really matter, right? We're all trying to innovate something. Um, is there, do you have time or do you have the team or people who focus on what other people are doing? Because going all the way back to the start, when you talked about failures, other people learning from those failures is is, is, yeah. is saves you all that time. And if you connect much better, which we do in, in 2022, then you should be able to so much more efficiently get to where we need to go collectively, right? At a real global stage. So yeah, a few questions in one there, but do you have people looking that, I mean, because that's all time investment without really any measurable input, people watching, what are, going to conferences, listening to what other people do in an R&D space, connecting with people, meetings, more teams meetings. Um, yeah, there must be uh, hard to to get a gauge on, on that. Um, yeah, it's always going to be difficult to get a gauge on that, but we our people are very connected into that global um, uh, research sort of ecosystem. So mm. they generally do understand what what others are doing. When we get to the, a point where we, we want to invest internally perhaps in, 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 in taking uh, an invention through to uh, a technology, if you like, we, we actually have people in-house that can help us do a scan, a global scan, to see whether or not something's already out there or there's something yeah. similar that could be adapted. Yeah. And so we don't repeat it if there is. Yeah. Uh, so we're very careful at that point. And that's actually where a lot of the money is. Taking something from a low technology readiness level yeah. to a high one is a long journey and it's very expensive. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we do a lot of that. We also have within CSIRO uh, a mechanism where we, we bid for future science platforms internally. And future science platforms are, are all about Horizon 3 science. So what we need in five years or ten years' time mm -hmm. Um, and there's quite a rigorous process around uh, getting those up. So scans on what's been done globally, you know, where the strong points are, uh, where we could where we could improve things perhaps. And then even when they start the future science platforms, um, they'll, they'll then eke out, uh, you know, the directors of the future science platforms and their advisory committees will, will, will eke out um, where the best... Um, kind of bang for your buck's going to be in terms of uh, the research um, going forward. So within those, we, we would commonly employ about 20 um, postdocs within into a future science platforms and they're connected back into the business units and, and wow. programs such as Discovery. Yeah. Um, and it's a real way of sort of getting that future science done for those future, you know, inventions or, or innovations as well. So we have a number of different mechanisms that we go through um, within CSIRO. I've never worked anywhere like CSIRO where it's so organised. Um, yeah, wow, yeah. Uh, you know, and becoming uh, more more organised. But that, that's, I think, how we do it. Does that explain? Does yeah, that it, it does. And, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm truly just, I mean, a, a world I have no familiarity with, so I can ask all the stupid questions, but it, it must be... You know, just listening to that last bit, it must be really hard. You need some some real future crystal ball PhDs who are only who are like specialized in 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 staring at a crystal ball and trying to work out whether something already exists, whether it actually technically is feasible, right? Whether it's got commercial applications to it, and and then also who who else might already be doing something like that. 
So that yeah, that that's a bit of a that's a funky mix of variables that you have no control over. So that that's and then you know I'd imagine somebody needs to set a budget and somebody needs to talk about performance and outcomes and all those wonderful things that that sit in government organization. I think it's fascinating because it's, I mean, we just have clients and they want a product and we deliver it and, you know, it's good to go to the next client and we move on. I mean, I wouldn't call it a simple business, but in many ways, you know, you got, uh, and we've got plenty of variables and unknowns um, in, in clients, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a completely different world that I, uh, yeah, I've been there once for a couple of hours and that's that's all the exposure that I've had to it. So it must be, uh, um, yeah, so three years. Um, yeah, it sounds like an exciting place to work for sure. Yeah, but that yeah, that that definitely explained it. What what what's so you know? And I did sort of mix in what else is coming out, but I, I might I might um, not not you know go deep too deep on 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 any uh, anything you're working on at the moment. But you know, going back to that question. So things like detect or and and uh, I mean we just had um, you know photon assaying is quite a remarkable you know change to a very classically driven industry part of the industry. Uh, what should we be watching? I mean what, what's all what's out there and that we might not know of yet that is is something to watch. Don't want to put you on the spot, but if if, <laughs> if nothing, that's also fine. But uh, I, you know, I, I, innovation is is really fun to watch and and um, yeah. So I guess, so, you know, I'll just, I want to tackle that in a couple of parts. So first of all, you mentioned photon assay, which is what Chris Hoss's, um, Chris Hoss's yep. a spin out from CSIRO yep. has taken that out. But the reason, I, th- I suspect one of the reasons why that's been so successful is that it's it's recognised by the JAWC code, those, those analyses. So when we, if we take that back a bit into what we were discussing earlier and how do you get, how do you get um, industry to take, these things seriously or to, to change the way we do things, um, one of the ways of doing that um, in the mind space is, is through the JORC code, um, mm. is, is, is changing what, what's recognised um, in that JORC code, um, which is quite interesting because it's just being reviewed, I think, last last year they were reviewing reviewing that code. It was undergoing a review. Um, it, in terms it's of undergo- the- it's next year. It's supposed to, was supposed to come oh, out this year. year. Uh, um, I'm I'm a little bit off. involved with it. it, but it's that's volunteers um, trying to do something uh, yeah. besides there. I've seen Other- some stuff, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But the um, yeah. I guess um, in terms of what's coming next, um, it's it's just uh, their decision support tools for exploration through cover is in in my in my mind. Um, yeah. So it's we've got a bunch of data that's disconnected. So how do we connect that data? How, you know, is, is data fusion possible? Um, can we get uh, more robust um, machine learning um, uh, solutions uh, out there with uncertainty around those models? For example, mm-hmm. can we derive can we really wrap uncertainty around our say depth of depth of cover models and we know we can right so that those sorts of solutions are coming you know they're mm. actually going to come out you know um soon hopefully and, and people will be able to access um them uh our footprints to mineral deposits that's always a big thing um so footprints are in the current cover but also in the um maybe the buried cover in terms of the interfaces within the, within the regolith so using the regolith a little bit more uh uh, systematically and, and, and in a smarter way. 
Um, and also let's have a think about what our search spaces are. So the uh, we often talk about areas as being brownfields, but they're brownfields at the surface and down to 50 metres. Below that, they're just about greenfields. Mm. Okay, so how are we going to explore them? Um, because at, at some point you can't use the regolith anymore. So mm. we have to use other means. So, you know, we have a project running at the moment called Indicator Minerals uh, for, for basically nickel PGE type deposits. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two aspects of that. One is um, in the resistate um, minerals that you get out of the regolith and um, so the team are looking at that. And the other aspect is actually looking at the um, the mafic ultra mafic bodies as well. So what what subtle changes um, uh, in the in the trace element geochemistry can we see within them that will point us towards a fertile zone? Mm-hmm. So there'll be more of that, you know, mm-hmm. not just obviously nickel, but we'll be looking at um, other um, commodities um, as well uh, in in that as well. So that'll be part of the change. There's also a bunch of new satellites on board in terms of the hyperspectral uh, satellites that are coming up, um, you know, that the pass over our heads basically yeah, yeah. Um, where we pass under them or whatever. Um, and the data coming off them is is really interesting. So we'll, we'll see whether we can see anything else in them that we haven't been able to see elsewhere. And we do know that that, that signatures get pumped up through that, that regolith, right, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. So it's extremely being, useful, yeah. It's extremely useful, and yeah. as structural geologists, we use it all yeah. the time, yeah. right? So, and so we don't maybe understand how those signatures got there <laughs> yeah. sometimes, or when that happened. Yeah. Um, I guess in New Zealand, it, it's so active that you can imagine it being pumped up now. But in Australia, we we, we don't have an appreciation on it, on actually how active our fault systems are. You know that you can see faults in the regolith. You can see that fluid must be moving through these zones. So, just getting better at re- recognizing those signatures and having better ways of, or, you know, building decision support tools for industry around recognition of those signatures, so that mm-hmm. you don't have to be an expert to do it. So, I think passing the data through a system so that people that are not experts can really use that data and stand up and and, and understand why the why behind they're seeing a particular signal is going to be really important. And that's what actually takes that out of that machine learning sort of path yeah, as well exactly. because with, with ML, it's black box. You know, you, you yep. throw stuff in, you get a black box solution out. And most of the time with most of the solutions that you will see, they're not even spatial because they're not using spatial machine learning um, uh, methods. You don't really know where your signals come from um, in them. Whereas, you know, within CSIRO, we're, mo- we're, we're moving towards these spatial um, ML um, systems as well. Okay. So whatever we produce here um, and hopefully get out to, to, to everybody, um, we don't want them to be black box solutions, essentially. Yeah, because, I mean, you want to, it for it to be reproducible and, and if you want to put it in the hands of the masses without it going wrong, yeah, there's, there's a few steps to conquer there. Um, but, you know, and if it's just geochemistry yeah. data... Uh, with signatures, then you can probably be fairly smart about that. I mean, in, in a way, uh, data mosaic is, is a simple version of that, right? How can you take a bunch of data and get a pretty simple <clears throat> um, hierarchy out of something that your brain can understand, which is also a little bit the background behind that the sort of machine learned prospectivity analysis as well, right? You, you, you reduce it down to some um, Algorithms that are based on the, on the systematic data approach. So it's it's and I, I I agree. I mean, obviously there are so many more opportunities in the data space, 
Um, I, I get a little bit tired of either thinking about it or talking about it, but it is just true. We are so bad at dealing with all the data that we have. Um, it, it's it's uh, there, there got to be improvements there. So yeah, certainly watch that space. Yeah, uh, and we, we shouldn't beat beat ourselves up too badly because we we're actually not that bad at dealing with that data, you know, overall. But we're just not good at perhaps um, uh, understanding all the dependencies or the the, the, the relationships bet- between between them um, well that's what i mean it's almost i'm not uh, just to, you know just to clarify i mean it's not that we uh, we we just um we could do better at it, it no human yeah. can interpret you know 15 data sets by just staring at them right there's got to be some sort of method methodology behind that and the layering um you know i was talking to john ronsky about this the other day and he has his own sort of targeting approach that doesn't come out of the machine and it is, it's a real sort of specialist driven you know approach that that doesn't um resolve around 55 different layers and and, and data crunching in a machine uh, over a cup of coffee so sorry just to clarify but you you're, you're right yeah and i and i'm with john on on that as well so i'm that sort of school i actually think that the <laughs> my favorite um prospectivity modeling um method is still using um, uh, a knowledge base um, system yeah. like using fuzzy logic basically because you're just putting the expert or the expert like you know I won't <laughs> I won't say it's me but you're putting what you know into mm. the machine basically mm. you're telling the machine to do what your head is doing normally yeah. but because the machine can see every pixel and you can't see every pixel you can read every pixel it will bring up things that you may not have seen if you just looked over the data and laid things up. Yeah. So that's why I like that method. I understand it. I know yeah. what's happened to the data. I know what the outcome actually means. But it works for me because I do understand it. But it doesn't work for everybody because they, they actually don't have that understanding of the perhaps some of the data or um, or, or the mineral system or, mm. or, or whatever. Um, I don't know what the answer is. No, 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 we could talk about it. And, and that's the fun thing about science. I mean, and, and the last time I circle back to the failures comment all the way at the start, because I, I do find that um, quite a sort of pivotal realization of research. I mean, just because it failed once, in my mind, doesn't mean that it can't then work because it isn't science across the world for the decades and eons and you know isn't it a whole bunch of people trying to do the same thing and there's this incremental movement of somebody adding a tiny little layer somewhere until suddenly somebody comes mr edison with the light bulb and says ah i found the final puzzle piece right isn't that how the whole machine moves forward right it isn't one person starting in a corner and then discovering this thing without any prior knowledge right so these failures We've got to appreciate them more, as you said. I really think, and put them out there, uh, because that's exactly right. We, 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 and the mineral industry. And again, I don't want to uh, I- indeed beat ourselves up too much over it. But I was talking about failures in, in resources uh, and 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 res- reserves uh, estimation the other day, and and it's a it's a good example because we don't really see why some of these projects failed. I mean, as a resource geologist, you just don't know why it failed. The, the, the share price crashed, and I have a few examples that I keep referring to, but these are the only six that I kind of know of because it's all hush-hush. Nobody needs to go through the ringer, and the company will come up with some bland statement about something that, something, something, geology, geology, blah, 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 you know. But we don't really, 
know and see what's gone wrong. And I find that really frustrating because I want to learn from that. And the whole reason I got involved with the Jork um, code is not because I like studying 52 clauses of, of text as a structural geologist, but it is the only gateway to understanding the framework of what everybody else is doing and, and under what framework they're doing and how they're reporting it and some sort of structure to the chaos of what all these geologists do with their arm waving and to see it going wrong, whether it's research and failures or whether it's resource models and so on. To me, that's that's a, re a real key to research as well. Sorry, I just got on my soapbox a little bit. but <laughs> <laughs> no, that, no, that's true, though. And I remember when I was working for Wrangler, we used to complain about that as well, is that you never really understood why, you know, for someone else's project didn't kind of make it through. Um, even within companies rumor. like that, even within big companies, you don't see oh, yeah. the mistakes from the other minds. I mean, is there's must, you know, isn't it? It's a yeah. big company like Anglo. Yeah, we we well back then. I haven't been we haven't worked there for a long long time. I, I think we did go through a process where we did see um, some of those issues. So mm. they were, but I was part of the global group, so we would look at, you know, we'd look at everything um, together every now and then. So we we would see that, but. Yeah, sometimes you just wouldn't wouldn't really understand, and it's not worth the company to tell you why something failed because they they actually want to sell it to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, um, and having said that as well, it may fail for them because of uh, you know that maybe the the size wasn't good enough or or you know big enough or, or whatever. Um, but it, it may be a, a great success for somebody else down the track who, who cracks the, the nut around the processing, yeah. for example. And that we've seen that happen many times before. Exactly. Uh, so perhaps if the failures were, were out there, it would stop us from innovating further down the track because we go, well, that doesn't work, that one, you know, rather yeah. than going, well, you know, let's we've got it now, we've got to make it work because we just paid a bunch of money for it. So... Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. No, in an well, idea, yeah. well, there'll be more open information. Um, you know, sort of more open file information. But the yeah. the way that the um, reporting is structured is that we get great we get some great data through um, exploration programs um, uh, because of the way things are set up uh, in Australia. I don't know how it works in New Zealand, but I imagine pretty similar. Yeah, same code, um, same structure. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, within a certain number of years, data are released and, mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. And we can build on that, so it's really great. But once something goes to mine, yeah. when we don't that we don't need to see that information. We, we don't get that information anymore. Um, maybe that will change down the track with um, responsible mining or something, you know, like ESG types yeah. of things. Um, yeah. More disclosure, and, yeah. Well, the companies might have to disclose stuff almost um, voluntarily because they want to disclose all the good things they're doing uh, mm -hmm. as well as part of that, you know. So if we go to carbon credits or I don't know what we're going to do. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in the science agency. We, we don't make policy. We don't, <laughs> yeah. we don't do anything around policy or anything. But you can imagine that things will change, I think. Um, and, you know, so will companies disclose uh you know how they're capturing their carbon, or yeah. or what they're doing to their nasty stuff that comes out because they want some sort of credit um, to show yeah. that they're, they're doing a good job. Well, Maybe. you can definitely see that as a trend um, because I I, um, I talked about ESG with, with Bruce Harvey the other day, and 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 it was really interesting to see that that is a really fast moving train, 
And I think there will be some collateral in that same space. And, and, and Jorg is already getting more into even further transparency, more detail about reporting. So I think if you project that forwards, yeah, there, there will be there will come a day when that that ultimate data accessibility will, will provide more opportunities. But uh, yeah, that, that's a hard one to look into the into the future. Wrong. That's and so that's not for us. Think about the data and, 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 and getting data out. One of the problems with our machine learning models is that the data are not good enough, mm. right? Yep. So um, no one's got enough data. Uh, we have a machine, uh, an, an MLAI um, postdoc, uh, who's actually based in Queensland with Data61, but she's working in with minerals. Yep. And all she, she, so when I meet her, she, she just says, your data are terrible. <laughs> And our data is clean, you know, it's yeah, been collected yeah. in the lab. We've just given, you know, everything scanned with every different bit of equipment. You know, there's SEM as well. It's all collated. Wow. It's beautiful. She goes, there's not enough data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You go, oh, my goodness. And so then we go, well, can we give, can we talk to a company about getting some data? She goes, you know, and she'll have a look at some data. And she goes, it's not good enough. It's not good enough, no. And look, it's not good enough data. You people, she says, have you have terrible data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I look, you're spot on, and and that's a joke we have here as well. If, if you know, and again, if, um, it's just hard to do because we work in a very practical industry. But if somebody says, no, no, our database is clean, I go, really. <laughs> But yeah. I think she she presented a nice paper at the Mining Geology Conference, I think, um, and uh, yeah, definitely understand or she, she understand what she's talking about. And all the way back to the start, I can also see why you now um, want to, or why you have an interest in English uh, and arts because you said data are, and that um, so people will appreciate that <laughs> because you must. Um, you must be the champion report reviewer and get the red pen out with that background in English. That's uh, <laughs> no, well, I don't ever correct, correct that anymore because people don't look at it as plural. Oh no, we had um, we had a client change it back to is or uh, in our report yesterday. Everything from R to is, they just said that's wrong. And anyway, that's uh, <laughs> that's yeah, where yeah. over it. You have to let that one go. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's not a hill that I choose to die on. That's uh, now. Look, Sandy, very nice to talk to you. I find it. Uh, I learned a lot, and yeah, thanks for the work that you do and contribute to the industry. Um, you know, this is really um, a bit of a quest. You know, to find out how the industry moves forward and and who's working in it and what we can do better. So, really enjoyed your contributions. Um, anything else that you want to share before? Um, before I well go home because it's six thirty and um, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm late for dinner. <laughs> yeah, Anything else on your no, mind? No, or? no, all good, all good. So yeah, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's been great sort of chatting to you. Yeah, now and I've got a few people coming to one of your sessions. I think is it next week or very soon anyway um, from our Perth office. So they'll, they'll come and say hi. But um, that'd be yeah, great. I'll uh, yeah, and I'll uh, next time in Perth we'll. Um, drop your line, say hi. But yeah, thanks so much and um, see you at the next AGC meeting. Yeah, I'll see you then. And yeah, right. make sure you visit next time. We'll, we'll give you a tour. Thank you. That would be lovely. Yeah. Thanks, Annie. See you later. See ya. Bye.